Good morning. Today we're continuing our sermon series where we've been looking at the faith of one of the most important people in the Bible, Abraham. Now we've seen the ups of Abraham's faith so far, especially in the beginning where God called him to leave his homeland and follow God wherever he was going to lead. And that's what Abraham did. He left his home and followed God. What an amazing testament to his faith that was. We've also seen the lows of Abraham's faith as well. We looked uh, a couple weeks ago, Rick looked at the failure of Abraham as he traveled into Egypt and he lied about his wife being his sister, putting multiple lives in danger. And he didn't show that same amazing faith that led him to follow God out of his homeland. This time he thought he knew better and he failed. Thankfully, God was gracious toward Abraham and continued to keep the promises that he had made as he led Abraham on that journey that would make him into a great nation or make his descendants into a great nation, what we now know as the nation of Israel. Now, what we're going to see today is that Abraham is faced with a dilemma, but we're going to see him rebound a little bit from that previous failure. What we're going to look at today is the responsibility that Abraham had with his faith. How well do we do when it comes to responsibility? I hung out with my nephews and my niece this last week, and they're all teenagers now, and I can tell you, responsibility for them, hit or miss. Sometimes they're like, yes, I did that, when it was good, usually. When it's bad, it's like, not me. It wasn't me. And then there's an argument that ensues, and it's bad. But kind of fun, too, because they're not mine. Sometimes we do take responsibility seriously. And we would do anything that we needed in order to follow through in our responsibilities. Other times, I'm not sure that we do so well. There's a story told by a man named Bernard Brown, who was president of the Kennestone Regional Health Care System in the state of Georgia. He once worked at a hospital where a patient knocked over a cup of water accidentally, and it spilled onto the floor beside his bed. And the patient was afraid that if he got up, he might slip on it and fall and hurt himself a little bit worse. Um, so he asked a nurse's aide to mop it up. But what the patient didn't know is the hospital actually had a policy that said that uh, small spills were the responsibility of the nurse's aide. But uh, if there were larger spills, they were to be mopped up by the church's, uh, or the church, the hospital's uh, housekeeping group. So the nurse's aide decided to, uh, that the spill was a small, no, a large spill. And so she called the housekeeping department. Well, the housekeeper came and Decided that was a small spill. And then an argument ensued. It's not my responsibility, said the nurse's aide, because that's a large puddle. And the housekeeper did not agree. Well, it's not mine, because that's a small puddle. Well, the patient's sitting there getting a little bit exasperated listening to this, so grabs a, the bucket that came with it and pours it out on the floor. <laughs> Asks, is that a big enough puddle now for you two to decide? And it was, and that, that's when the argument ended. I mean, seriously, that could have probably been cleaned up easily and dried out. With, nobody needed to take responsibility. Just do it. But you had to have an argument. It reminds me of something that happened to me when I worked at Target in high school. I was working in the hardware automotive department because apparently they don't know who I am. Uh, I know how a hammer and a screwdriver works, and that's about the extent of it. 
but it, it didn't matter. I was still there. And somebody let me know, a, a, a guest, because we don't call them customers at Target, a guest let me know that somebody had spilled some oil in the automotive, like a pretty good puddle of oil in the automotive aisle. And I thought, we've got cleaning people for this. So I'll, what I did was, they've got those red phones, and you can call and get a hold of the desk. And so I called that phone, or you know, picked up the phone, got a hold of the desk, and I said, hey, there's a... Didn't, didn't say that I worked there, but I was like, hey, there's a, a, some oil that got spilled in the automotive aisle. And they said, oh, no problem. We'll have somebody take care of that right away. I was like, sweet. Two seconds later, my, my walkie-talkie goes off. It says, hey, we've got an oil spill in the automotive aisle. Go clean that up. Apparently, it was my responsibility to go do that. So I went and grabbed some paper towels and cleaned that up as best as I could, as best as a junior in high school would. Ish. As we're going to see, Abraham is going to have two things that happen to him where he's going to have to make a decision and whether or not his faith is going to determine his responsibility. If you have your Bibles, you want to open them to Genesis chapter 14. To start out, we're going to look at some of the background information that sets up this situation that drives the decisions Abraham is about to make. So we're going to start in verse 1 of Genesis 14, where it says, and the, at the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, Kaderleomer king of Elam, and Tadal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera king of Sodom, Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years, they'd been subject to Caterleomer, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. In the 14th year, Caterleomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh Kiriatham, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran in the desert. And you would think I'd be done with names, but there's more. <laughs> then, they, thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> I practiced. <laughs> Then they turned back and went to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazaz and Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Caterleomer, king of Elam, Tadal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. All right, now I know why Rick didn't originally put this into the passage, but... I think it's good to get the history, the backstory of all of this, what leads up to this. So this is one of the rare times in the book of Genesis, actually, where you can kind of put a time frame on things, because uh, the writer starts by saying that this was during the time of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and his reign, and all these other kings that are listed. And this passage, it's describing two warring groups of kingdoms. There's the eastern kingdoms, led by Caterleomer, king of Elam, which would be uh, modern-day southwest 
Iran. And these four kingdoms in the east fought against five from the west, and that's Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, and Zoar. And, and this war is being fought because these western kings were rebelling against these eastern kings. Like, they were paying them money, they were giving them honor or whatever, and then they decided, wait, we shouldn't have to do this. There's five of us, four of them, we're going to stop. And so they did... And it did not work out real well for them. And so the four kingdoms of the east, they fought against the five from the west. And this, uh, so the kings from the east, the kingdoms from the east, they apparently were the mightier side and they won. And the list is pretty impressive, really. For example, in verse 5, it says that they defeated the Rephites, the Zuzites, and the Emites. And all of these people are described as being from the giant clans in Deuteronomy 20. Now, that's giant not in number of people, although there were a lot, but it's literal giants, like big people. I'm not saying like 10 feet, but maybe like seven. Um, They were just larger than normal people. And they were strong. There were a lot of them, and they were tall. Uh, Mostly, though, they're fighting clans. And these were defeated by these eastern armies and their kings. And we end up seeing the armies of Sodom and Gomorrah flee, losing some of the people to the tar pits in the Valley of Sedim. That seems pretty awful. And then eventually being overcome and losing their goods and their food. In addition to this, the catalyst for the rest of the passage, that's found in verse 12, where it says they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Now, if you remember from last week, Rick spoke about how Abraham and Lot separated because there just wasn't enough land to support both of their families as well as the livestock and and herds that each had. Abraham let Lot decide on which land he was going to take, so Lot chose the well-watered land, a better land near the city of Sodom. But that decision ends up costing him quite a bit, actually, for a couple of reasons. And the first is he's captured in these wars that are going on in this passage. And then the second one we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. So Lot, who's Abraham's nephew, has been carried off as a prisoner of war by Cater Laomer and all of those kings who were with him. But Abraham is going to hear about this, and he's got a decision to make. I mean, the first decision is, is he going to rescue his nephew Lot? And then second, how is he going to do that? Is he going to do it by force? I mean, his forces aren't near as big as four different armies. Or is he going to do it by negotiation? I mean, he's pretty wealthy. That seems like that would be the best way to do it, to negotiate peace. Well, let's read on and see. Verse 13. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshkel and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard about this, heard that his relative had been taken, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. As we can see, Abraham goes and rescues his nephew. 
And we're just two chapters removed from his failure in Egypt. In chapter 12, he tried to deceive the Egyptians where he lied about his wife Sarah and said that she was his sister. And this lie, this deception, it brought harm to the Egyptians from the Lord and showed that while Abraham had trusted God well in the beginning, that, that trust was not in every area of his life. After Lot was captured in war, though, Abraham does not falter. There's no description in this passage where it says that he thought about what he was going to do, or there's no indication he faltered in any way. After he heard that Lot was captured, he put together a group of trained men, 318 fighting men, and he pursued the eastern kings to an area called Dan, which is on the north, sea, or the north side of the Sea of Galilee in the northern part of what would eventually become Israel. And we see some things here from Abraham as well. First, he had to have had some training and and was a skilled leader. As they come to the armies of the kings, he divides his men to attack. He attacks at night, and both of these were strategic. They attack from both sides, front and rear, was likely what would have happened. And, And attacking at night would have been strategic because his smaller forces in that surprise attack, could be more effective in defeating the enemies. And and they were. Scripture says that he routed them and, and pursued them north of Damascus, which is just a little bit farther northeast from Dan. 318 trained men against four armies, four mighty armies who had just come off a, a victory over five other armies. 318 fighters routed these armies. Abraham demonstrates an amazing faith, one that that he didn't show in Egypt, but now he does. Now he shows it. His faith determined his responsibility to his nephew, and through it, he rescued Lot. Now we're going to look at the second thing that happens to Abraham in this passage, and it's not another battle or a daring midnight rescue or anything like that, but it's something far more peaceful. In light of his rescue, In light of the rescue, Abraham is going to be visited by a king, but this king is also a priest of God. Verse 17, after Abraham returned from defeating Caterlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be, blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anir, Eshkel, and Mamre. Let them have their share. You ever seen a movie or TV show where there's this mysterious character shows up and and you're just not sure where they came from? Like you don't get a whole lot of backstory or any backstory. They're only on screen for a relatively short amount of time and then they're gone. I was trying to think through some of these and of course I go to my old standby Star Wars 
And in The Empire Strikes Back, there's a character named Boba Fett, and he's one of the most memorable characters, fan favorite. He's a bounty hunter in the movie, and he's tasked with finding Han Solo and a ship. And he does so, and he looks really cool doing it. Um, the character has become a sensation. He was a sensation back then. His toy was so expensive. I never had it, which is sad, because I could be rich. But I'm not. And that's okay, because I have God. Anyway, he's even got his own show, and there's a documentary on Disney+. Plus. And according to the internet, so I know this is factually accurate, uh, his screen time in the course of two hours, the two hours of the movie and Empire Strikes Back, is uh, just six minutes and 32 seconds. You don't get his backstory, you just know that he's a bounty hunter, although the only backstory you really get is that he likes to disintegrate people, because Darth Vader said no disintegrations which seems like that would be good. Um, you don't know what happens to him either. Like, he does his thing and leaves, flies off. But he had a huge impact on the plot, and he does it with a screen time of under seven minutes. Now, in this passage, we're being introduced to a biblical character whose only in-person appearance is right here. He comes in and then leaves without much fanfare. And, and that's no different than a lot of characters in Scripture. But there's a legacy to this person that extends even into the time of the New Testament. So following his victory, Abraham comes home and is visited by two kings, the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. The king of Sodom, who we saw earlier, was one of the western kings who was defeated by Caterleomer. But it's the king of Salem who's the far more interesting of these two. Like I mentioned, this is the first time that he's mentioned in the Bible, but it's not going to be the last time. His name is Melchizedek, and he is king over the city of Salem, which historically is believed to be another name for Jerusalem, like the original name. And it's interesting, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he's the king of Salem, which means peace. So he's the king of righteousness and peace. And there's a relationship between righteousness and peace throughout the Bible. Now, we don't have any background information on Melchizedek. We don't know his genealogy. His parents are never mentioned. There's no history as to how he became the king of Salem. There's nothing like that. And, and honestly, I'd say that's fine because we don't have any of that from any of the other kings that are mentioned in this chapter. But there is one thing that makes Melchizedek stand out from every other king listed, and that is in verse 18, he's called priest of God most high. This uses the Hebrew name El Elyon, for, uh, El for God. Elyon means most high. This is used throughout the Psalms and uh, other places when speaking about the God of the Israelites. And so far, after the flood, we've really only seen Abraham and his family really being faithful to God. And, and now we come across this king, the king of what will in the future be Jerusalem, where the temple of the Lord will be. And this king is not just a king, but he's also priest of God Most High. And that's something else, because this is before the priesthood set up in the book of Leviticus, in the law. Like, there is no priesthood yet. And yet, this man is a priest of God. We don't know how he's a priest, because we're not given that. We don't know what he did as a priest. We're not given that either. He just kind of appears. He comes out with bread and wine. He blesses Abraham. In verse 19, he says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. 
Melchizedek gives a blessing to Abraham and also praises God for delivering this victory over these kings. And then Abraham gives him a tenth of everything, a tenth of the plunder. And that in itself is a blessing to Melchizedek. And that looks back to the fulfillment of a promise, like a very tangible fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham just in chapter 12, verse 3, where he says, I will bless those who bless you. Abraham's been blessed by the priest of God Most High, and he returns blessing to Melchizedek through the giving of a tenth of everything. Abraham, the man of promise, of, of God's covenant, blesses this priest instead of just keeping the blessing for himself. I think what we see in this passage is really somebody living out the responsibility of faith. And the way that I saw this and looked at it, it's really coming, I think it's best comes from Jesus. When he was asked what the greatest commandment was, we've mentioned this many times from here, but I've, I really do think that this fits well. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. when he's asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And we see Abraham love his neighbor, even somebody closer than a neighbor with his nephew, and he went to rescue his nephew Lot. He demonstrated an active faith. He didn't hesitate, even though he had less people, even though these kings are fierce warriors, they'd come off this amazing victory, even though the promise that God had made to him that a line would come from him, that he would be made into a great nation, had not yet been fulfilled. Abraham still went to save Lot. The responsibility of your faith is that you put others first because of your love for them. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus also says, love one another. Abraham loved Lot and he showed it through his actions. He showed it in the passage that we looked last week, that we looked at last week. He shows it here and he's going to show it again and we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. Love for your neighbor means that you jump into action when it's needed. That can be proactive too. You don't have to wait for the signal. It's being others first. Now the other responsibility of faith is loving God with all that you are. And again, we see that in Abraham's dealings with Melchizedek. Abraham could have just received that blessing and moved on, but he didn't. He knew that Melchizedek was a priest of God, and he honored and blessed Melchizedek by giving him a portion, a tenth of everything. Now, we can look at this, and, and you know, typically churches are going to point toward monetary giving to the church, giving a tithe, and, and that is important. That is a way that we can honor God, and a necessary way, especially because like, that's how we operate the church, is through you. Like We are a collective that helps to run this and fund this, and and... We don't really make a big deal out of it, though. Like, we bring it up when the text brings it up, or at least once in November, I think, usually. And that's about it that you're going to hear from us, because we don't want it to be a big deal. We want it to be a big deal for you, but we don't want to make a big deal out of it. It should be your decision. You are blessing us, loving us, and, and giving honor and glory to God 
through your giving by honoring his church. That's what makes it more than just the monetary giving. You're, you're supporting the things that God is doing here in the local church here at Maple Grove and also across the world in the nation, in, in, in the missions that we support. Abraham models these two things. He loves God with all of his heart, soul, and mind. And he loves his neighbor as himself. Abraham is a great model of the responsibility, responsibility that we have in faith. But there's still one who's greater, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus perfectly for eternity has been in a relationship, a loving relationship with his father. And he came here to do his will. He also loves us in a far better way than we ever could. And he demonstrated that on the cross. In the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek gets mentioned again in Hebrews chapter 7. And it says in verse 1, This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. The author of Hebrews continues comparing the Levitical priests to the one who had come in, in the order of Melchizedek, which he's quoting from Psalm 110. And, and that great high priest has come. He says now in verse 23, now there have been many of those priests, those Levitical priests, since death prevented them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Now, I can't get away from a sermon on responsibility and not bring up one of my favorite movie franchises, Spider-Man. Um, in pretty much every single one of these movies, there's a phrase about responsibility that you hear, and it's originally coming from the comics, and it was so important that they put it in the movies, and the phrase is, with great power comes great responsibility. That phrase is what drives Peter Parker as he takes on the responsibility of being Spider-Man. And, and it made me think, you know, if you just replace power with faith, it's not that much different. Faith in Jesus, that comes with great responsibility too. 
The responsibility of your faith is to love God and to love others. And it's an active love. We are able to do this because of Jesus living this out. He died on a cross for your sins, taking the punishment. He was resurrected and he is even now at the right hand of the Father, serving as the great high priest, continuing to intercede, to mediate, to intervene for his followers as we await the day that he will return or he calls us home to be with him forever. And until that day, actively, every day, live out your responsibility of faith. Love God with all that you have, with all that you are, your whole self, and love one another in the way that Jesus loved you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, that is my prayer. We have this great, great model in Abraham in that he loved, he loved you so much. And there's so many different ways that we're going to see that. And he also loved his neighbor. He loved others, as we see with his nephew Lot. Lord, we know that even, even though he is, he's a great model because he's like us. He wasn't perfect. But there's a better model in Jesus. And he is who we follow. He is the one who said, follow me. He's the one who, I mean, that is a simple, simple command. Follow me. That's what we need to do. Follow him as as he loves you, Father. Follow him as, as he loved us, as he loves us dying for us, paying our penalty, but then conquering death and now at your right hand still interceding for us. Lord, we just thank you for that plan. I mean, it is sometimes hard to understand. It's hard to even believe, but it's so important. You are why we are able to come here. Lord, I do want to pray for those people who are going through hard times in the Ukraine and in all the other places right now. I pray for the churches in those areas. I pray that you would continue to strengthen them. They know what this is like. They've gone through this. Just continue to help them lead well. Pray for those who are able to provide support. This is loving others. That's what you would do. Lord, I just, uh, I just thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he did for us. Thank you that we are able to do for others, not to the same extent, but even just a shadow of what he did for us, that we can do for others. And we do it out of love, active love. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.